Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Alex Lightman. I found out about him and his work on Facebook. I'm on Facebook every day like the rest of us. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. He has a very, very interesting background. First of all, he is the Chief Technology Officer and Director of the Fortune Nest Corporation. They do project sourcing, evaluation, funding, business planning, and execution. And he is the point man for the Bahrain Silicon Valley and other projects bringing technology to and from California, China, and the Gulf Corporation Council countries. He has a background in international government at the J.F. Kennedy School, Harvard University. He also has a background at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he is the author of two books, Reconciliation, 78 Reasons to End the U.S. Embargo of Cuba and Brave New Unwired World. Alex Lightman is the author of the first book in 4G Wireless. He is the former director of technology and innovation for the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And he established the Sea Shepherd Ideas and Innovation Center, which garnered over a 1,000 fans within 48 hours. And in its first month, generated hundreds of pages of ideas for upgrading Sea Shepherd's three ships into platforms for innovation. He also received the first Economist Reader Award for the innovation most likely to radically impact the world over the next decade, 2010 to 2020, at the London Science Museum. The award was on behalf of his role in the innovation of 4G networks and was the result of a worldwide vote of people in 200 countries over a five-month period mediated by a panel of 32 judges assembled by the Economist. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, Alex Lightman, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Morning. Since my interest was first spawned by your interest in Bahrain and you being the point person for the Bahrain Silicon Valley, I want to talk about why Bahrain is not more known around the world. And what does Bahrain have besides gold and pearls and oil? It's well known in the Middle East because it's the financial center. It is the fastest growing financial center in the middle uh, in the world it's the fastest growing um, economy uh, it's the fastest growing financial center and it's the freest economy in the Middle East uh, it's also next door across what will soon be a causeway that will take 40 minutes the longest causeway in the world from Qatar which is the fastest growing economy in the world so these are almost like city-states uh, Bahrain has about 1.1 million people Qatar has about 1.8 million people but they're um, they fit what uh, my partner in uh, Fortuneness uh, says is a new paradigm, that there are no more big countries or small countries. There are only countries with big ideas and countries with small ideas. Uh, Qatar shocked the United States by winning the 2022 uh, FIFA World Cup by having big ideas. And uh, Bahrain um, has over 400 international banks, all within a three-mile radius. I mean, you can you can literally take a taxi between any two of them within five minutes because there's just not that many people. And if you look at uh, Bahrain, it looks like a city of the future. I mean, there's just a really cool futuristic buildings there, but it's not this wild, out-of-control you know, growth based on hype like uh, Dubai has been in, in the last decade. It's not a Manhattan size. It's more like, you know, let's say, um, a, maybe a, a third of the size of downtown uh, or midtown in Manhattan. Interesting. So many people felt that uh, Dubai was really the place to be. But Bahrain, I guess, has been a sleeper just developing 
Sure, but also banks don't don't hype banks. Uh, banking centers and financial centers don't really need to hype themselves. The people who they want to attract or want to do business there know. And part of the reason was because uh, uh, for this is that uh, Lebanon used to be a center of stability, and Lebanon has had its civil wars. That was part of it. But another part is that the um, that the very first place in the Persian Gulf, which I like to call the Arabian Gulf because there's no such country as Persia anymore, um, is it, six, uh, it was before any other place besides Iran and Iraq. But, I mean, of the countries that are below Iran and Iraq, it was the first place where oil was discovered. And there's also been a military alliance between the Al Khalifa family and the United States for 60 years. So if you're in Bahrain, you notice, uh, okay, this is an island. It's about you know, 10 miles by 30 miles. and uh, But you also notice these massive Navy ships because it's the center for the, the Arabian Gulf fleet for the Navy. And by the way, the U.S. government likes to call it the Arabian Gulf also. And uh, you, you see that it's a, it, there's a place next to all the ships called the American Valley, which they, that's what the locals call it, but the British call it Cholesterol Alley because it's filled with American fast food places. Um, and you see, you can be there on an evening and you see people cruising by. It kind of reminds me of Sunset Strip in Hollywood. And you see women in miniskirts with platform shoes and you see guys with muscle shirts. And you could be somewhere in a very hot place in the United States with palm trees because it just doesn't seem like the Middle East. Then you also have um, women wearing their, their coverings um, from Saudi Arabia, which is connected by a causeway. So Bahrain is, to me, the place that is that is the future. It's a place where people who are uh, very liberal and people who are very conservative get along and are side by side and are at peace with each other. Now, the official language is Arabic, though. How much of the Bahrainians speak English? Uh, I, my experience is all of the ones that I've met speak English. I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'm surpri- even surprised to hear that the official language is Arabic because so many people that I meet with uh, speak English. Certainly all the people in government who deal um, with projects speak, um, speak English. It's said that the government is a constitutional monarchy. Yes. How does that influence business and how business is done and the structures of business in this location? I think that Americans are going to have to look at the fact that most of the world doesn't work the way that America supposedly works. In fact, America doesn't work the way America is supposed to work. Uh, Families have a very, very, very strong influence on American government as well. However, they don't automatically stay in in charge. But in uh, virtually all the countries of the Middle East, there is a, it's not, you know, you don't replace the head of state every four years. Um, And the key thing is that if you look at where the, 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 the money is, money is in the sovereign wealth fund. So the United States, because we consume something like a third of the world's uh, gasoline, um, we are sending lots and lots and lots of money, hundreds of billions a year over to, uh, well, at least the West as a whole sends hundreds of billions a year to the Middle East. And a lot of that money goes to the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. There are six of them. Um, Saudi Arabia is the biggest one. And then it's Kuwait, uh, uh, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, uh, Bahrain. And you have within those countries about 40 million people. But here's the big thing. They have a 455 uh, billion barrels of oil, just, just under half of all the proven reserves of oil in the world. And they have something on the order of 
one quarter of all the world's natural gas. So imagine if California had half the world's oil and a quarter of the world's natural gas, how, what the possibilities of California would be. Um, what, what makes California amazing, though, is technology. But part of what makes California amazing with technology is uh, venture capital. So my thought is, well, these, these families are managing their money through sovereign wealth funds. They have about $8 trillion. The lowest number I've heard is $6 trillion, but the projections are for $15 trillion by 2015. Wow. And Bahrain is their banking center, and I believe even though China gets in the news because of all of its uh, surplus, I believe that China is, is a giant bubble. And I think that the people will demand that China spend its money on health care and food subsidies because food prices have doubled. So to make a long story economically short, I believe that when the dust clears in 2015, that the only place where there'll be big piles of, of money for investment in technology will be um, the GCC Singapore. And that's it. And the rest of the, place, the world will be hounding them for money. Wow. So what does it have to do with the monarchy? Well, the monarchy is a fact of life. And if you only want to deal with democracies, then you probably don't want to do business in the Middle East. How did you become attracted to doing business in Bahrain? I have been giving speeches about how to make the world a better place economically and through technology and through, in particular, through Internet Protocol version 6 and what I call real 4G, not the fake 4G like AT&T flipping the switch to turn on its 4G network in its marketing department and nowhere else. And uh, that caught the eye of, of a number of governments. So I've been invited by over 40 different governments to go and speak in their country. And I was invited to be one of the keynote speakers at the Bahrain World Economic Summit, where the sovereign wealth funds come and, and talk with each other, and uh, among other things. And there are a number of ministers, and they liked what I had to say. And so they invited me back again this year, and I put forward the proposal, which is actually um, the idea of you know my other colleagues in uh, Fortune Nest uh, for Bahrain Silicon Valley. And that went into the papers. Um, and that's so that's picked up momentum since then. Explain the 4G wireless that you're talking about and the IPv6. Why is it important and what's not being done that you described at AT&T? Sure. Uh, the, well, in my book, Brave New Unwired World, The Digital Big Bang and the Infinite Internet, I make the case for skipping 3G and going straight to 4G. So if you look at 1G, it's analog. It's easy to clone and hard to roam. 2G, uh, and by the way, 1G was mostly frequency division. 2G is time division, and that's GSM. And the Europeans got together and found a way of doing roaming. So Nokia uh, led an initiative called Nordic Mobile Radio, which competed against the Germans and the French. And so 2G was a real commercial explosion. Motorola would have had a big success, but the U.S. ITAR prohibited them from sending out their 128-bit encrypted mobile phones. So Nokia kind of jumped into the market gap there that was pretty much created by the U.S. government. Uh, within 3G, uh, over my objections, which were loud and which are in writing and through speaking, I said that the government shouldn't have all these auctions, but the governments were greedy and wanted to get a couple hundred billion dollars in extra taxation for their fastest-growing sector. And that set back 3G, which wasn't really much of a technological advance. It was code division, which is mostly part of uh, Qualcomm's part of 2G anyway. And uh, Korea had kind of a head start there. 4G, to me, is something radically different from 1, 2, and 3G. And what I wanted to do was to go in and just make a power grab with the telcos and say that 
while 1G, 2G, and 3G were all within the license band. In other words, you had to pay billions of dollars to play to get your first customer, that I wanted 4G to be both the license and the unlicensed band. And in fact, one company could be in both. So for instance, Apple, when they have FaceTime on the phone, you're using Wi-Fi and you're using AT&T's network. That's, that to me is along the lines of what I was thinking of with 4G. And you won't find any telco in the world that was recommending uh, back when I wrote my book in 2001 that they should also be using unlicensed band. In fact, ironically, AT&T tried to kill Wi-Fi at the FCC and through backdoor meetings. Wow. And the only one company in the whole world stopped them. And I think that this is something I'm surprised is more widely known. It was Apple. So the irony that Apple and AT&T would team up is, is tremendous. But without Apple, there wouldn't necessarily be Wi-Fi and there wouldn't necessarily be such widespread exploitation of the ISM, the Industrial Scientific and Medical Band. Notice it isn't the industrial, scientific, medical, and Wi-Fi band. So Apple did an amazing service because Apple is one of these companies that has a 10-year, 20-year vision of the future, and it has to do with, you know, with making things available to people. That's not a telco vision. And so the place where I am radically, philosophically different than the telcos is that I think that 4G wireless broadband should be free to some people. In other words, there should be architectures. There should be availability of it to some people where, like Wi-Fi, it's free. And there's no reason that you, you can't do that. The other major thing with 4G that just makes it fake to me is if you're not giving IPv6 addresses to the end user, in fact, many addresses per user, then it's not real 4G to me. Because the idea is like you have your phone number and I have my phone number. We have end-to-end connectivity. You can dial that num- my number and you know you're just going to reach me. But on the Internet, the IPv4 internet, it's a 32-bit address, which means mathematically two to the 32nd power addresses, which to, which to boil it all down comes to 4.3 billion. Now, the U.S. government has about a billion of those. U.S. corporations and universities have a billion. So about almost, almost 6.7 billion people have to share two billion addresses. Well, that means you can't give even one address per person much less one address for every car, every you know, appliance. I have thought for a very long time that everything that costs more than $25 except for food will be connected to the Internet. And IPv6 makes a leap to 128-bit addresses, which is 3.4 times 10 to the 38th power, or 340 trillion, trillion, trillion addresses, meaning you could give one to every manufactured product ever being made out until the heat death of the sun and you'd still have, you know, extra addresses left over. So it's an abundant space. It's a blue ocean possibility of, of giving every single person, place, and valuable thing addressable identity, which is good for managing theft and ownership. It's good for keeping things out of the hands of terrorists. It's good for, you know, tracking, tracking pets and tracking children. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons to do it. But the idea is that we have the ability to have a, a, what I call the ever smarter world. And these are all things that are very hard for one company to own. They take government involvement, like no one company should or, or could or should run that database exclusively. And so I spent years and millions of dollars um, and, the, you know, and also got 75 companies and NATO and most of the major economies of Asia to all agree with my vision for transitioning to IPv6. 
I even testified before Congress and got Congress to mandate IPv6 for all federal agencies and to include it as all procurement. But the irony is that when I stopped promoting it, it stopped really happening. So there was actually a greater percentage of traffic on IPv6 five years ago than there is today. Today, it's only one-fifth of 1% of all IP traffic is IPv6. Yes. But we run out this year of IPv4 addresses. So a telco can't give you your own dedicated Internet address. They were not visionary enough. They fought the Internet. They, they had this anti-free you know, architecture because there are certain architectures that lend themselves towards freedom and others that lend themselves towards lock-in and capture. And the telcos are united as if they're sort of a political party that united that you they must lock you in. And the only way to really have an efficient telecom system where computers and communications converge is for everybody to have their own IP address that they know, like you know what it is. Now, I've given talks all over the world, probably to 30,000, 40,000 people, and I've met exactly one person, and he was in Beijing, China, who when I asked the audience, do you know your IP address, he said yes. And I asked him what it was, and I typed it in. Uh, and it was, and he, it was true. It really, what, he really did have that address. Um, but nobody knows their address, whereas everybody knows their phone number. So we actually have a measure of how primitive we are, how barbaric we are about, about open source broadband, wireless broadband, because of how few addresses people have that they know what they are. Two things I want to say to you. One is that wasn't it you that helped convince the U.S. Department of Defense to improve the security of its networks and upgrade to IPv6? Well, yeah, well, more than that, there was something that's true, but more fundamentally, the United States government, uh, and in particular the Department of Defense, gets a lot of credit for funding the Internet. So DARPA, and with the, with the brilliant leadership of still one of the smartest guys in the world, Dr. Larry Roberts, had this idea of sharing your resources. So if you got a computer with DARPA funding, you had to make it available to the network, to the ARPANET, also called DARPANET depending on whether Republicans or Democrats were in charge at the time. And DARPA put in, you know, most of the, and the U.S. federal government put in most of the first $50 million. Now, in 1990, we had $1.1 of federal revenue. In 2000, we had $2.1 trillion in federal revenue. So in the 90, from 90 to 2000, in that decade, we dropped an extra trillion in revenue. Nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the world. And People who deconstruct what the heck happened in the U.S. economy say that the Internet was responsible for up to half of that. So an extra $500 billion a year in revenue came because of the Internet, which means that the federal government invested $50 million one-time fee, and they got $500 billion a year. So that is a million percent return a year every year. It is the greatest return on investment in history. And those are my numbers. I cannot believe with all the economists in the world that nobody else came up with that number. But what it says is that if the United States made that much from IPv4, there's an absolutely great reason to put plenty of money into IPv6. That was my argument. But what's amazing about this is that the Department of Defense has by far the largest IT budget, and the U.S. DOD uh, had gone on walkabout, as I say, that's the most polite way I can say it, from the Internet, <laughs> trying to substitute all these lame brain other standards like gossip and stuff. I mean, even the name is terrible, instead of the Internet. And so I, you know, I was pounding on them, please come back to the Internet, come back and take leadership, because if the federal government doesn't lead, it won't happen. 
And if the DOD doesn't lead, none of the other agencies of the federal government will want to sort of step in front of you. What about the concern about security, that if they give these IPv6 addresses out, even into the trillions, they won't be able to control fast enough what's going on from them? Is that an argument or is that a part of the paradigm? Certainly an argument, but it's not a valid one because there are certain decisions that companies have to make. So Cisco has to make a decision. Do we put IPv6 in our routers or not? Does Microsoft, Microsoft, do we put it in our operating system or not? And it's there already, and it can be turned on by hackers without your even knowing about it if you're clueless about IPv6. So we have, so even though only one, uh, only, you know, one um, fifth of 1% of all the IPv6 traffic is there, I am, I am, I don't have a way of proving this, but I am sure that more than one fifth of 1% of all the hack attacks on networks comes through IPv6, but people don't even notice them because you, there's only, it's like you're in two dimensions. You're in flatland and an attack comes in from the third dimension. You don't really understand it. So IPv6 is something which it's not a matter of can you ignore it. You can ignore it all you want. You can use the ostrich strategy, but people can, who are smart can still use it to attack your network. And so how do you respond to that? If it's supposed to have be... to upgrade, we have to move to IPv6. We have to make a decision of a date where we stop routing IPv4 packets, just like we made a decision to stop using UHF television. For standards, right? Yeah, we have to... Ch- we, but there's a point at which we have to just stop. Like we have, we have no horse and buggies on our highways. It used to be horses and buggies could go anywhere. Now they can't. Now they can go around Central Park in New York and pretty much, and you know, in country roads and stuff. I grew up with horses. But there's a point at which you have to say, no, only, only the faster vehicles can, can go on, on the networks. Will this make doing business on the Internet faster? Theoretically, you could work on an architecture which could uh, increase your ability to have traffic go uh, faster. But that's, IPv6 isn't necessarily made. It's a... It's a it allows you to have greater addressability, to have greater, it allows you to keep the end-to-end principle alive rather than going through network address translation so that you can have your own numbers at the end. But just like your phone, like the fact that I go through and I can reach you directly rather than having to go through a PBX, a private branch, right, right. to reach you, is that faster? Well, yeah, because I don't have to stop at a secretary or a voice box or voice things, but it's not necessarily, it's more the architecture rather than just that it's faster. It's not, it's not itself broadband. That's a, different, that's a different thing. Who in the United States would need to be the first one to go through this transition that would influence the rest of the players to play? Microsoft, at one period of time, had most of the IPv6 traffic in the United States because they were using it a lot on their campus. It was the default in um, Windows XP. It was set up as a default in Windows XP, so you would see, do, do I have IPv6 and do you have it? Okay, let's use that. Um, but so Microsoft has to be there. The, the DISA, Defense Information Systems Agency, has to make the transition. Um, Google got huge blocks of IPv6 addresses, and uh, so Google has to do it. Those you know, people who do cloud computing, uh, Amazon, those guys have to make the transition to make it for the rest of us. And what's the benefit to them? That's the part I still don't get. What's the benefit when they make that transition? What do they get? Transition is inevitable. It is impossible to go and keep up with the growth of the Internet um, and keep the end-to-end architecture principle with IPv4 if you have a global network. So 
if something's inevitable, you might as well get there first and find new and novel uses of it. I'm sure you have some in mind. Is that part of the work that you did at Innova Technology? No, that's Innophone. Innophone. Focused on IPv6. Talk about Innophone, would you? Well, um, Innophone was the primary thing, business of Innophone in the beginning was to do conferences about IPv6 uh, and made its money through sponsorships. And then it moved into a phase of consulting for government. So it did transition plans for the United States and for NATO and for companies and also did uh, best practices world report. So we would see what was the best aspects of transition that people were doing and then go and do that. And then um, was working on software. Um, the company, uh, I took it public through reverse merger and I had set up to do acquisitions, but I didn't count on the fact that there were so many people doing naked shorting, which is illegal for a bulletin board stock. And yet there's, I think, 3,000 um, complaints to the SEC and not one of them investigated of naked shorting where someone can just go and, without owning any of the stock, without having... It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So basically, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I lost on paper... Uh, over $130 million from all that short selling because I foolishly tried to defend against it for going on about three years. And if I'd known what I'd known now, you know, in the shorts, just take your stock down, but you know how much stock is there. You just let them do it, and then you just go in and buy the shares for, you know, for almost nothing. And then you say, okay, give me the shares that you just suppose, you know, with 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 going long in a stock, you are buying and then selling. Going right. short, you are selling and then buying. And then it's like, okay, give me the shares. You, you supposedly sold these shares that you owned. I bought them, give them to me, deliver them to me. I didn't know that one simple thing. And if I'd known that one simple thing, I could have defended my, my wealth. But as it is, you know, I, I learned that um, not to go public. <laughs> That's what I learned. At least not go public with the, with the current enforcement mechanisms of the SEC. Indeed. And coupled with high-frequency trading and derivatives, I think it's a dangerous course. Talk a little bit about your work with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society and explain what the Sea Shepherd does. Sea Shepherd it was started in 1977 by Captain Paul Watson, who was a co-founder of Greenpeace. And he thought that Greenpeace uh, wasn't uh, active enough, wasn't aggressive enough in solving certain problems. And Sea Shepherd is most well-known for its work with whaling, which I'll get to in a second, but also works on trying to save the Galapagos uh, baby seals and the seal hunt in Canada. Uh, tuna, which is probably going to go extinct next year, the bluefin tuna, and uh, in general, looking at the, the degradation of the marine environment. Um, the, the oceans cover over 70% of the Earth's surface, and you, we talk about canaries in a coal mine. Well, these marine species, many of which are have collapsed, you know, by 90 to 97 percent from their former numbers. Um, these are harbingers, and if we keep on having marine species go extinct, there's a serious problem. And it goes like this: if you take the large predators out of the ocean, then the medium-sized predators will have population explosion, and they will go crazy and eat up all the small, um, the small ocean life. And the small ocean life eats the algae. And algae will bloom out of control, and you'll end up on all the coasts of the world with a dead zone where algae is just basically exploded out of, you know, there's nothing keeping it in check. So if you want to literally kill the oceans around where humans live, uh, then 
you know, by all means, just get rid of the fish nilly-willy. And you, what Sea Shepherd is doing now for whaling, and whales, by the way, have an actually very important role in the ecosystem. Number one, uh, when the whales crap, they actually take carbon out of the atmosphere. And, you know, it's there at the bottom of the ocean. And two, when a whale dies, the whale carcass actually feeds other life because it's so cold and so it degrades very slowly, like in a refrigerator. It feeds other marine life for decades, so it, pro- it creates an oasis of other sea life. It's kind of amazing how important whales are. Now, whaling is banned under this, uh, the CITES, the CITES Treaty uh, on Endangered Species, and it's banned by the International Whaling Convention, IWC. However, uh, the Japanese have this trick that they play as if the whole world is incredibly stupid, and they say they're doing scientific research. So they have killed 45,000 whales since this ban and saying that they're just doing it for science. And they have published only four papers that look even remotely like scientific papers, one of which makes the startling conclusion that whale sperm can't fertilize a cow egg. In other words, it's not real science. It's just right. Japan is just uh, scamming the world. And Australia is the only nation with the guts to be able to say, okay, this is nonsense, and took them to the world court. Now, people in Australia and their own government, the WikiLeaks documents are filled with documents. I mean, it's extraordinary how much diplomatic uh, power Japan has expended trying to get the United States to, to stop Sea Shepherd. By the way, Sea Shepherd has 21 staff people. Japan has 127 million people. And this is not some group in Japan. This is the, the Minister of Fisheries uh, has empowered and funded a billion yen a year subsidy to the Institute for Cetacean Research, which does zero research, and just basically a whale kill, illegal whale. It's, it's whale poaching. It's going into protected preserves um, and getting whales and killing them in a, in a nature preserve. So what Sea Shepherd does is it has three ships. The Japanese have four right now. And it goes and just simply puts its ships in between where the whales are. So in other words, you can't harpoon a whale if there's this ship in between. I mean, I guess they could try. They have, you know, shot their harpoons right at people who have ducked. Luckily, in the 33 years of Sea Shepherd, nobody has been injured. Nobody's died. But it's not for the Jap- lack of the Japanese trying to kill them. I mean, the Japanese have tried to kill them. Last year, they, they cut in half the Addy Gill, which was this... Uh, this basically this interesting trimaran that had gone around the world. And if you see the videos about it, you realize how crazy propaganda is because you can see the boat. It's, it's sorry, ship. Uh, it's, it's in the water. It's barely moving because they're low on fuel. And this, the ship is coming along, and it veers to the right and slices it over, it just tries to crush it and tries to drown the crew. And so that the Japanese got away with that just says, wow, these guys are... They're maniacs. It's political, though. It's very political. I do want to tell you something that I interviewed somebody several months back, Rosalind Peterson, who has the organization called Agriculture Defense Coalition. And she shared that she has documents that the Navy Weaponry Training Project has the license to decimate ocean life on an unimaginable scale over the next five years. They anticipate 2 million takes, which are significant disruptions in essential marine life activities per year, totaling nearly 12 million takes for the period. That means they can destroy whatever is in their way in whatever kind of war experiments that they're doing. And so 
this is a multifaceted thing that's going on. And I totally appreciate Sea Shepherd and what they're doing. And it breaks my heart what's happening to dolphins as well. But there's trespasses and there's terrible activities that are going on with no consideration to the environment. None. Zero. And that's a whole other side of things that's very difficult to talk about. The Navy having the license to do that. Did you know about that? No. Yeah. So anyway, please continue about Sea Shepherd. I just wanted to share that with you. Well, I think uh, what I know from setting up with Lawrence DeCroote, the Sea Shepherd Ideas and Innovation page, that there are a lot of people out there who feel very passionate about not pretending you're doing science research when you're just killing whales. There's no real serious market for this. It's just a matter of stubbornness. Japan has been whaling for 800 years. Right. They just want, I think it's more that they want to try to have claim property rights in Antarctica because Antarctica has at least 50 billion barrels of oil because nothing about Japan's whaling makes any sense. I mean, the fact that they would, of all the things that they could argue with the United States about, they're arguing about, you know, the United States government should go after Sea Shepherd based on their tax status. All that would mean is that Sea Shepherd would be based in other countries. It wouldn't stop it because Sea Shepherd has a TV show. And the TV show is showing what Sea Shepherd is doing. You know, it's a reality show. So the people go, oh, wow, you're actually doing something. And the contrast with Greenpeace is enormous. There are three Sea Shepherd ships right now playing cat and mouse with the four Japanese ships. And Sea Shepherd asked Greenpeace, please send one of your two ships down. Please, please, please send them down. Because if there's four of our ships, you know, and four of theirs, we can actually end whaling. As far as Sea Shepherd knows, no whales have been killed this year which is amazing because if there's no whales killed, they make no money and the whole thing is a financial disaster. And the Japanese government just has to add more money to, to something that's, that's a failure. And that's a failure in the eyes of the public, bringing them shame. So we could actually end 800 years of whaling. We could end it this year if Greenpeace would show up and help to do it because it's just the numbers. And Greenpeace ignored the request and is having people send origami whales to President Obama, which is just to me, just kind of silly and pathetic. It's like, But they're pretending that they're working on stopping whaling. Don't you think that sometimes people in different cultures feel they have a right to continue a practice that has been a longstanding practice, such as whaling in Japan for 800 years, that after a while, a culture develops this consciousness that they have the right, it's their terrain, it's their territory, and what they do is their business kind of thinking? Well, I could de- I could defeat that easily with two points. Number one, Japan is a signatory to the IWC. Japan has agreed to stop commercial whaling. So Japan made that agreement. So what, what's there to say? Japan made an agreement. It should withdraw from the treaty if it doesn't, uh, doesn't agree with it. The second thing is as far as this, well, we used to do it, so therefore we should do it in the future. Well, people used to do cannibalization. You know, American natives used to count coup and, and chop off the top of people's heads. I mean, Japanese had samurai who were allowed to kill any peasant who gave them lip. Should we continue with that? Or let's put it on on less contentious. I'm not saying, by the way, that it's my view. I'm saying that from the Japanese point of view, the fisheries, I'm sure that that's part of the thinking. But I'm telling you that my point of view is that the Japanese used to have 1G mobile phones and 2G mobile phones. Okay, well, why don't you stay with that? Why don't you stay with those 1G and 2G if you're so interested in keeping your cultural tradition? In other words, you can't be as modern as Japan is where you're trying to replace humans with robots and tell me that it's just impossible for you to, you know, modernize your outlook. And the whole, this is the thing about completions you talked about before in your intro, that that's, a, in my mind, 
do you want to have world peace or do you want to have a world at war? I mean, that's pretty much the question. You say, okay, I want peace. I'm working on something I call peace engineering. It's like, well, fine. Okay, if you want peace, then let's look at those things that 98% of the people of the world or governments representing 98% of the people in the world or 98% of the nations all agree on. You know, if you're 98% there, why should you be part of the 2% that says we want to do what people want to fight about, you know, and we want to just keep doing it in defiance of the other 98%. So I'll give you two examples of that. One is whaling. The only nations that whale are Japan, Norway, the Faroe Islands, which is part of the Kingdom of Denmark, but the Greenland and the Denmark part of Kingdom of Denmark don't, and um, Iceland. Okay, great. So, um, well, in terms of, of culture, why should we help the Iceland banks? You know, why should we buy the Norwegian's oil? I mean, there are, there are things where if the people want to say, we want to have one thing, we, other people can say, fine, we'll take the other side of that. But my thought is that anything where 98% of the people agree on, that nations should have the humility to bow to the will of the world. Besides, why would you want to hunt whales to extinction? How does that help your society? The 800 years of whaling come to an end one way or another. It either ends where there's still some whales left, or it ends where there are no whales left. And how does that benefit humanity? And what gives any people the right, you know, to wipe out a species, like just so that they can go and commercially sell it? Now, here's, let's talk about that for just a second. What Japan does with the whales and what it does with the dolphins, it sells it as meat. So do you know anyone doing scientific experiment where autopsy remnants and tissue samples from the scientific research are sold for food? Can you name me any other place in the world that that happens? No. So it's autopsy remnants. So you're taking these things and you're dissecting them for science. You're not supposed to sell these corpses after you've researched them. It's gross. Why do they sell them? They sell them because they want to have an excuse to keep whaling. But the fact is that their freezers are just filling up with more and more and more and more whale meat that nobody wants to eat. You know why? Because it's mercury-laden. The longer that a creature lives, and whales live a really long time, they can live as long as humans, the longer they live, the more mercury they get in their cells because the oceans are toxic. And so humans eating mercury, they, they can have you know something ridiculous. I used to be very conversant with the numbers, but it's hundreds of parts per million of mercury when it's like 0.5 part or 0.4 part per million, like a half a part per million is the maximum safe dosage according to Japan's own doctors and medical researchers. So why would you want to have something that's hundreds of times more? And it's not like Japan doesn't know what mercury poisoning did. They had this Minamata disease, the ouch-ouch disease, which was, which was horrific, a horrific industrial accident. Mercury poisoning is really bad for you. It drives you insane. So there, there's no reason to eat food that's laden with mercury. It makes no sense. It's not, and to ch- feed this to children at lunch, is, it's, it's really the height of, of, of insanity. And people have even gone so far on the Sea Shepherd Ideas and Innovation page to say that it's child abuse. I mean, why, why can't you take children away from their parents if they're going to feed them poisoned meat? Now, if it's that bad, I mean, how can the government allow it, much less subsidize it? That's why I said I just think it's perceived as a cultural right, even though it's a wrong. Well, then how many people are actually eating whale meat in Japan? 1%, 2%? That's a great question. I'm sure you know that. But the answer is it's 1% or 2%, or otherwise this this meat wouldn't be stocking up in the freezers. I mean, so it's 
it's it's not a cultural thing. It was something that happened that they stopped doing for a while, and then they had they were desperate for protein after World War II. But Japan hasn't been poor for a very long time. For two generations, Japan has not been poor and has been able to import all the meat that it wants. But also the way that they, you know, it's not that they're the, that they're nice to animals. I mean, look at Kobe beef. It's made so that the cows can't move and they feed them newspapers and all this stuff. Cows should be out there eating grass. That's what cows should eat. If you're going to eat beef, you should be eating beef where cows have, have eaten grass. It's not even healthy for them to eat corn. I did a whole piece on world farming a couple of months ago, and it was really astonishing. It is astonishing how animals are treated prior to slaughter, let alone well, there's, during there's slaughter. There are a lot of statistics about vegan and vegetarian diets versus carnivores, but there, I don't know of any studies that show if you allow animals to eat what animals would normally eat and to be out in, you know, out more in the wild, like cows eating grass or chickens eating grubs and insects and stuff, how, how healthy that is. You know, because the, the, basically the studies are showing cows eating unnatural things that are subsidized, right. uh, what they should be eating. And it makes a difference in the quality of their meat and how it works for humans. So cows that eat lots of corn don't have the same kind of immune system, so they have to get more antibiotics, which end up in the meat. I did a whole piece on that, too. It's frightening, actually, and it's sad. Well, I don't think humans should be eating whales or dolphins flat out, and the vast majority of humans agree. So I don't know why the Japanese think that they're specially able to have something that's poisonous. It makes no sense. And it's this whole thing about cultural things. Well, it's culturally America's place to be number one in the world, and it's culturally our place to win battles. So therefore, should we go and attack the rest of the world and, and because, because to stay the biggest, should we take their oil? You know, does that make sense? I mean, you can take this cultural thing in any direction you want, but it leads to war. It leads to conflict. It leads to death. It leads to deficits. It doesn't lead to the same place that acting with the will of the world and completing things so that no one is wailing. So we're all we're all on the level playing field. Nobody's wailing. Did you hear about the new trade agreement between Japan and Canada to bring seal meat to Japan? Canada and China. Canada and China. Sorry about that. Right. Yeah, what I do you did think hear about, about it. And I think that well, I said on Facebook something that upset at least one Chinese person, which is which I'm happy to repeat and upset any Chinese listeners, and that is that that baby seal meat is the most similar to human meat, and I think it's really dangerous to give um, the, the anybody, especially the Chinese, who will eat anything, a greater appetite for for what amounts to human flesh. Um, baby seals can't swim. When they're when they're born, and 300,000 of them are clubbed to death each year. I mean, they, they have no chance of getting away. And it's not like they're farmers raising these things and putting in money. Basically, just guys are going out and you know, into what amounts to parks and clubbing baby seals to death. And you know, the idea that Chinese would be eating that um, to me, it's very sad. What made you write Reconciliation: 78 Reasons to End the U.S. Embargo of Cuba? Well, a variety of things. For one thing, I like the idea of jobs, and I like the idea. I wanted to do an experiment and see if people really wanted jobs and really wanted economic growth in America, because that's my focus. I want jobs. I want economic growth. Now, here's the funny thing: with all the Federal Reserve created 10 trillion and stuck it on the America's balance sheet, um, and they sent 3.3 trillion to corporations and abroad, and they're saying, "Oh, this is all part of stimulus. The stimulus. We need the stimulus." The irony is that if you took off the embargo with no money, that you could have had just as much economic growth over time as 
all of the growth in the United States last year, So, and even more than in 2009. So in other words, an entire year's worth of U.S. GDP growth could be done just from the Cuba embargo. It is the number one thing that the U.S. can do at no cost to itself to actually make a trillion dollars for the United States. And it just shows me that if we go down, if we have a, a financial you know, downgrade of our debt, if we have a runaway inflation, if we have unemployment, it's because we chose to, put the, to not care about people having jobs, not care about farmers selling their products, and not for any real reason. It's just because of what, uh, what's called state capture. You have a group of people who can grab control of one particular mechanism of government and stay in control of that mechanism. So with respect to U.S. foreign policy in Cuba, it's been captured by Miami Cubans. And my own feeling is that their goal is to go back and own Cuba and run it. And part of the reason that you want to own Cuba is that it's got $3 trillion worth of oil. Cuba has 20 billion barrels of oil, just like the United States. Cuba has as much oil left as the U.S. So, of course, you'd want to take over Cuba and grab it like a, you know, um, there's a statement from Hitler about Switzerland. Um, Diese kleine Stockdelschwein, ich peck ihm beim Heimweh ein, meaning I'm going to, the little hedgehog, I'm going to put him in my pocket on the way home. So the Miami Cubans go, okay, so Castro stole our farms and stuff, you know, screw us? No, screw you, man. We're going to go over and we're going to turn the, the United States government, we're going to grab hold of it. We're going to do something the United States candidates want. We're going to grab hold of it. And we're going to put the pressure on you and not let you grow and develop until we can come back and take over again. However, it costs the United States money, and it costs Florida money. So to me, the least intelligent voters in the country are Florida voters. Why? Because they have one of the worst mortgage default rates in America. You have all these people with these mortgage problems, and it's because a lot of people can't afford their homes. Well, guess what? If you didn't have an embargo of Cuba, if you just lifted it, you would have an extra 200,000 jobs. That's my number. Other university numbers have said 60 or 70,000. Most of those would be in Miami-Dade County. Most of those would be in Miami-Dade County. So you would pretty much end the housing crisis. It would be like, what if Nevada tried to embargo both Arizona and California and only do business there and not allow people to come and gamble? Well, okay, then Nevada would screw itself. Well, that's what Florida voters have done. Now, the irony is that a majority of people in the United States want normalization of, of relations with Cuba. But here's the surprising thing. The majority of people in Florida want normalization of, of relations. The majority of people in Miami-Dade County want normalization of relations. And even the number of Cuban Americans in Miami-Dade County want normalization. So we're not talking about democracy. We're talking about people with conflicts of interest commercially who want to make money by making the United States I call this a pariah policy because the vote at the U.N. is last year was 187 to 2. The entire world, every single country in Latin America, every country in Africa, every country in Europe, and every country in Asia, unless you count Israel, was against the United States without exception, without one single exception. Not one NATO member voted with the U.S. Now, you can't tell me that the United States is the world leader and that the president of the United States is the leader of the free world or of any world or the most powerful man in the world when every single nation in the world but Israel votes against you on a policy, on a matter of principle that the United States has held for 50 years. Last October 20th, 
is the 50-year anniversary of the U.S. embargo of Cuba. It has accomplished nothing but cost the United States over a trillion dollars. It's accomplished nothing. And I can say, and I know that this will be controversial, I have no doubt that Fidel Castro wants the embargo for the simple reason that I was told that he looked at my book, because I let the Cuban government have a look at the book, and they have made no announcements about it. They've done nothing to put forward the argument. And to me, the book is the book is too good. It's too effective. It makes the case too powerfully for lifting the embargo. So I don't see any evidence the Cuban government wants to lift the embargo. I have a I'm question. I, I have a question about I'm that. I'm talking about the, the leaders of Cuba, which is Fidel and Raul Castro. I have a question about that. Do you think that perhaps the IMF, which goes in and takes over countries, has a deal with Fidel Castro behind the scenes? to have access into the country and have its way, but it's not necessarily available to just anybody in commerce? No, I don't think the IMF has a deal with Cuba at all. The IMF and the World Bank treat Cuba terribly. Cuba is treated uh, horrifically by these supposedly multilateral organizations, and it just exposes that they're, that they're hand puppets to the United States. And I think, And when I say the United States, I don't really mean the United States, because the will of the people, if you actually looked at, you know, I look at a couple things. One, what do the majority of people want? Okay, so you better have a really, really good argument for doing something that that very few of the people want. Number two, what does the Constitution say? Are you abiding by the Constitution? And in the case of the Cuban embargo, it clearly violates the First, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. Like, why should people who come from Cuba get accelerated citizenship? The Fourteenth Amendment says you're not supposed to treat one group differently than another. What is it about? Well, it's about making money. I mean, look at Radio Marti and TV Marti. $500 billion to beam propaganda at Cuba that no Cuban has ever... I've never met a Cuban who saw TV Marti. There are people who've, who've heard Radio Marti, but $500 billion for, for those organizations. But they use that money to buy time in Miami. So you basically have U.S. taxpayer money being used to create programming that's shown in Miami. Um, why? Where is, where is that in the Constitution? Where in the Constitution does it say that the U.S. federal government is in charge of propagandizing American citizens with television programs? And if we're going to do it for Cuban Americans, well, why not do it for everybody? Why don't we, you know, uh, have programs that tell black people that white people are really great? You know, why don't we tell people that, you know, that Mexican illegals are bad? I mean, why don't we have lots of TV programming for every little thing that every interest group wants to promote its agenda. Why don't we have programming for that? I mean, we don't do that because it makes us un-American. It makes us less likely to have a higher common aspiration. And it's, you know, it's just the triumph of politics. Why do we pay people in Florida over a billion dollars a year to destroy the Everglades to grow sugar cane when we could get sugar for a fifth the price from Cuba? But we don't really want to buy from Cuba because we want to make the, the people suffer. I assure you that Fidel and Raul Castro are not suffering, so we're not doing anything with the embargo except hurting people who are innocent. And the Geneva Convention isn't just about combatants. We talk about, oh, the terrorists are not wearing uniforms, so you know we can put them in Guantanamo. But the other parts of Geneva, the core parts of Geneva, is that you can't engage in collective punishment of innocent people. It's immoral, and it's and all these conventions on human rights and treaties that we signed, we throw them out the window. Because by the definition of the Geneva Convention and other treaties, what the United States is engaged in is genocide. Now, the thing is, Americans, because we don't think we suffer from it, um, 
you know, we don't really care. But I notice things that Americans do care about, and, I, and I'm surprised that people cannot draw the dots together. For instance, President Obama flew to Copenhagen to try to get the 2016 Olympics. I wrote on Facebook way before the Olympics were announced that Rio would win. The United States had no chance of winning. I also said that Qatar would win the 2022 uh, World Cup like a week before it was announced. And part of the reason I know this is because it's, there's a, an understanding of people all over the world that if the United States is going to stick the middle finger up and say, we don't care what the world thinks, then the world's going to do the same to the United States. So mark my words, you have this on tape. I do not think the United States is going to be selected by anything that the world votes on until we end the U.S. embargo of Cuba. That's huge. That's a big, big, so big statement. Forget about, so it's a waste of time for New York and Chicago to spend millions of dollars on all these things to prepare a bid for the Olympics. Nobody's going to have it in the United States because they think that we're jerks over this embargo, and the world is right. We're jerks. And the irony is we're doing business with China. I mean, I'm not going to – it would be an entire program in itself what China is like compared to Cuba. But anything that you say is bad about Cuba, you can say the same thing about China at times 100. And, I mean, I could go into great detail if you wanted to, but the fact is – that you can't do business with China, which is Cuba's big ally, and somehow think that you're teaching Cuba a lesson. In fact, China doesn't tell the U.S. to lift the embargo in any forceful way because it's laughing at the stupidity of the U.S. forcing Cuba with all of that nice, juicy, delicious oil and all those incredible medicines into the sphere of influence of China, Russia, the European Union, Latin America, and out of America's sphere. I mean, it's like... It's the dumbest thing they can imagine, that a big, giant source of oil is going to be drilled exclusively with Chinese offshore drilling rigs. China has had to create an entire industry of offshore drilling rigs just to supply Cuba with rigs that will be 50 miles off the coast of Florida. And if you look at how the Gulf Stream flows, it flows so that the oil, if there was an accident, remember, these rigs have never been used before. It's a brand-new industry versus, like, America's been drilling for decades it's going to be all that oil is going to go on the Florida shores. And what's the United States going to say? I mean, did the U.S. pay compensation to other nations in the Gulf of Mexico for the BP oil spill? Not as far as I know. So there's no precedent for the U.S. We're going to have 100% of the pollution risk, and we're going to have 0% of the benefit of it. When that, those oil wells are so close, we could basically set up pipelines directly from the oil to the shore. We wouldn't even have to put it in tankers, as opposed to loading them up taking them to, to Cuba, putting them in tankers, and then taking them thousands of miles away places. Talk a little bit about your Economist Reader's Award. Sure. Uh, the Economist has innovation awards each year. And for the first time, they had a Reader's Award. And they asked readers, what innovation will radically impact the world over the next decade? And they got 4,000 suggestions. And a panel of 32 judges boiled that down to seven. And the seven included electric cars, graphene electronics, which was the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, nominee in 2008, and it was again nominated in 2010, and it won. So it's gotten a lot of publicity. Um, uh, yeah, it's private launch services, uh, random aid uh, for, for development projects, um, personalized genomics. Uh, those are some of the other things. And then I was nominated for, well, 4G was nominated, so the innovation was there. And they wrote me and said, if 4G wins, um, then you get the award. 
so-and-so come to London for the award ceremony. And I was the only one who went to the award ceremony who didn't know he, you know, whether he'd won or not. Um, and uh, so then 4G won, and I was able to get the acceptance speech. And as I'm talking to you, I look at the, the Lucite Award that they gave me for that. Talk a little bit about your interest in outer space. I know you've served on boards of directors or trustees for space law and space development organizations. It's and funny. I have a new assistant who's very interested in space law, and so uh, she's interested in writing a book about this. And uh, so it's come back to me. But, yeah, there's a, there are treaties that the United States has entered into to supposedly get along with the whole world. This is the, the, the silliness of the Cuba embargo is that it destroys completely all possible goodwill with the United, Station, United Nations. And then I ask, well, if we've done that, what's the point of these treaties? One of them is the Moon Treaty, which says that we will not commercially exploit the Moon, that nobody can make claims on the Moon if they're part of the treaty. Why the United States, which for decades has been the only nation that could make claims on the Moon, would be part of the Moon Treaty, I don't know, but it's, it's like it's a dumb thing. And then there's the Outer Space Treaty, which says nobody's going to make any claims in outer space. If I were in a position in the United States, I would unlock, unlock, uh, I would take away the embargo of Cuba. I would get their medicine. I would get their oil. I would export to the, all these farm products to them. But I would not try to curry favor with the UN um, through these treaties. And I would put in this submission, and we would exit those treaties. And I would claim the moon. And I would claim Mars. And I would claim near-Earth asteroids. And I would start commercially exploiting them. So if China wants to go and say, okay, we've got 97% of the rare earth metals and we're going to stop exporting them, we're going to, be, we're going to hoard them, the United States should, should read the writing on the wall and go, oh, wait a minute, China isn't really a democracy. It's not a free trading country. Oh, gosh. Hmm. Oh, wait, it's never been in its 5,000-year history. Oh, all right. Well, sometimes people do adhere to their traditions, and their tradition isn't for the United States to, you know, have free and unfettered access through free markets to raw materials. So, okay, we need to make sure it's our obligation as the U.S. government to make sure that we have minerals. So the moon is filled with helium-3. Let's go get that. Mars has gold. Let's go get that. The near-Earth asteroids have, you know, trillions of dollars of metal. Let's go get them. The Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans have had space cooperation for a long, long time. So no matter what it looks like out here to us in terms of what we should do and what the political landscape looks like, when it comes to outer space, there are cooperations going on all the time with these countries and in Europe. I see. So what technology have the Chinese shared for us for space that we really needed to go and do something in space? What, what technology do we get from them that we didn't have ourselves? I don't know, but what I know is that these three countries are cooperating in going out into space. China's way of cooperating is to copy. I mean, what, what does China have now that they didn't copy from the United States or another country that paid the, the, their dues? I have no idea. I don't think China has anything that they haven't copied. I can't think of one single thing China has that it didn't copy. I mean, it has plans and designs for this. You know, it has this, I don't know, J-20 fighter. But the, you know, there are 10,000 spies in Washington, D.C. alone, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of spies in Silicon Valley. I, I can't think of anything that looks suspiciously like we copied it from someone else in another country. I would say that the total amount of intellectual property theft uh, from China, of the United States from China is well over a trillion dollars. And people can say, oh, but we got money and the compass and we got fireworks 
from the Chinese and noodles and stuff would go, well, yeah, a thousand years ago, but patents are for 20 years. I'm not talking about things outside of 20 years. And it's not as if China had a patent system in any case anyway. So um, as far as cooperation, well, okay. I, I mean, I have all the cooperation you want, but it doesn't mean that nobody should be doing anything with the moon. The idea that we should leave the moon alone with no life on it, but that we should go in and kill whales and kill sharks and, and hunt tuna to extinction and club 300,000 baby seals a year to death so we could eat their meat and wear their fur, to me, that's insane. I'm sorry. I agree with you. I agree with you that it's insane. I don't agree with you that there's not life on the moon. I think there is life on the moon. And I think that what we're getting into really is that there is a separate space agency that has been going to the moon and other planets for a very long time. This is a whole other piece of direction and discussion and everything. But I just wanted to say to you in the context of this, I agree with you that we shouldn't be killing all these animals and ruining the environment. And at the same time, I believe that there is actually a fight for outer space going on with these other agencies that have nothing to do with the public and nothing to do with NASA as we know it. And that this is all about owning and controlling everything when you really come down to it. At the end of the day, there is a lot of sensitivity about China. I understand what you said about them copying everything and what have they done that's really innovative. But the fact of the matter is that United States citizens and businesses have turned over a lot of their manufacturing to this country over price. And until there's more business actually here and in other places where we have more choices where we can do business and we become more sensitive to other people and their cultures, we're going to be right where we are. Okay. Do you want to say anything to that effect? Well, I don't know anything about these other agencies. Mm -hmm. I've never heard anyone claim there was life on the moon. So um, I don't have anything to add there. You know, it's interesting. It would be great if there was life on the moon. I'd love to think that there is life everywhere in other worlds so that we could go and terraform them. But I don't, I, right now, I don't know that anyone's commercially exploiting the moon. I don't know that uh, I, would, I would be first in line to buy a moon rock for a thousand bucks if someone would sell me one. Right. What's next for you this year? Uh, I'm going to co-author anywhere from one to six books, depending on how those projects pan out. People come to me quite often and say, let's write a book together. And sometimes they, you know, really want to stick with it. And other times it just was a, a momentary idea. I want to raise the money and do Bahrain, Silicon Valley. And I uh, would like to uh, come up with a, a useful um, document about how to accelerate innovation in the United States, um, what the U.S. government can do to accelerate innovation. That's what I'm working on today. Do you travel much, Alex? I travel often, and this year I should see six countries that I've never seen before. I've been to 59 countries. Cuba was number 59 when I went last wow. year. Wow. Where are you going? I'm going to go to uh, Yemen, to Qatar, uh, to Russia, uh, to Turkey, and to Greece. That's wonderful. The Yemen part is just because I want to see these cities on top of mountains, which look like things out of World of Warcraft to me. <laughs> Do you speak other languages? German, uh, some Swedish, some Norwegian. Are you happy with the work of the United Nations at this time in your experience? No. I think it's absurd to keep on passing bill after bill after bill and then have no enforcement mechanism. And I think if you're, you know, that the United Nations should be in there uh, side by side with Sea Shepherd enforcing these, these treaties. And uh, 
I also see, you know, uh, that the United Nations, um, like there are all kinds of areas which are of global interest. Protecting intellectual property, where's where's that? Uh, promoting renewable energy, um, you know, I, I see things that are things to increase the power of the United Nations relative to other organizations, but I don't see that there are places where they are, like there should be a much stronger link between the UN and the International Court of Justice. The UN, when they have a vote, like the whole thing with, you know, the Cuba embargo, the UN should take the United States to court and just say, look, you know, this isn't right. It's, it's not consistent with these treaties. So if you sign the treaties, if you veto it, well, then that should mean you're out of the treaty. And if you're out of the treaty, then you shouldn't get the benefits of the treaty. So I don't understand how the UN can, can have treaties and not enforce them. That, to me, is just weakness, and it means that they're sort of taking space for another entity that would come along to replace them, just like the UN replaced the League of Nations, which was ineffective. I agree with you. I think the whole thing is ineffective. It's too large and too bureaucratic and too cumbersome, and I'm not sure I trust the agenda of the UN in general. I don't think they deliver much. You know, it's so focused on things with Israel, and yet I, you know, I look at Israel versus Palestine, and I go, the, the key things are, seem to be missing. Like, I have one issue that, that, that I find to be um, extraordinarily unreported, which is not the settlements themselves, but, um, which are controversial enough, but I, I'll have nothing to say about that, but that the roads that are made to the settlements, they cut through existing property that other people own, and they have a one-kilometer exclusion zone. So I don't know how long the West Bank is, but pick any number. 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers, 300 kilometers. If you make a road and you give it a one-kilometer exclusion zone, it doesn't take very many of those to slice the whole country or half of a country or whatever you want to say about it into something like if you have an egg and you put one of those egg slicers that makes all the things, it's impossible to have a viable country where other people can make one-kilometer-wide exclusion zones through your territory. And I, you know, I just don't understand how it can be that we say that there's going to be a solution for Palestinians and, uh, and there's nothing there for Israelis. So I look at the fact that Israel has the unreserved 100% backing of the U.S. Israel does things that are, like, I believe in property rights. That's why I emphasize the Moon Treaty. I'm being entirely consistent with a core American principles of property rights. If the U.S. backs a nation that doesn't respect property rights, like you have an olive grove uh, or something, and then that's destroyed by this road, well, then, of course, people are going to be mad about that. And then the United States is going to find itself uh, creating enemies all over the world and going, well, you know, tough. But I think that the United States is best off if we enforce principles. Like, for instance, if we're going to be back in the country, it should have property rights. Uh, look at the tragedy of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe used to be a food exporter, and now the country is always on the verge of starvation. Why? Because Mugabe and the quote-unquote veterans were able to just take property without due process, and so there were no real property rights from the farmers. So you end up with a starving nation. Well, ultimately, uh, I think a world where there's no respect for property rights, it's just whoever has the guns can go and, and just take property, I think that's a world at war. And ultimately... The United States is not going to be the sole superpower for forever, and we should try to put in place principles that will lead towards a peaceful world so that we're not having to have the double burden 
of not being a superpower and still having to go in and fight in all these places where we have allies, where we our allies haven't respected property rights. So there's no end to the conflict. I just wonder if after the entire collapse of the economy, you think that the United States government respects property rights in the United States. Well, I, I think it's kind of interesting that do you, do you know who is in charge of these more, uh, mortgage-backed securities, these collateralized debt obligations with Wall Street? Do you know who's in charge of regulating that? Are you talking about Goldman? Uh, no. Are you talking about Barney Franks? Nope. Who? Federal Reserve had the unquestioned responsibility for all those mortgage-backed securities that went wrong. But somehow they evaded any responsibility whatsoever. And in the Obama Wall Street, um, uh, you know, the I, I don't even remember what it's called, but something about uh, there was something about fixing Wall Street. And the idea was that consumer banking would go into the control of the Federal Reserve, which is humorous because you go, well, why would you reward an agency that won't let you audit its books and which was basically responsible for the regulatory failure of the decade? Why would you give them more responsibility? First of all, they don't have to answer to anybody. They're a private organization. They don't have to answer to anybody, and they do whatever they want, and that's the bottom line. But why would why would the president want to give them more power? That doesn't make any sense to me. Because the presidents are answerable to the Fed. Well, and this is something that, that then um, I would say that this, that this is part of the answer to your question of will the United States respect property rights? It's that... It depends on whether the Fed allows it. I think the Fed has no interest in the U.S. economy in terms of property rights. Well, it's very clear to me that they're picking up stakes and planning to put more emphasis overseas. I mean, look at how much money they transferred overseas. You know, with this $3.3 trillion going to foreign banks, which was never disclosed prior, to me, they're just buying controlling interest in banks all over, and they're acting exactly like a corporation that uh, has a, a... dwindling legitimacy in its home market. It's looking to expand abroad and have, you know, fresh fresh grounds for exploitation. Only the Fed as a corporation has its foothold in everything. We're doing a piece tomorrow on the Federal Reserve, an entire show on it. Wow. Okay. Well, Alex, it has been uh, very interesting to listen to you and to hear about your work and your multifaceted mind and area of interest. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to, listening to, and learning from Alex Lightman, the co-partner of the Bahrain Silicon Valley, the chief technology officer and director of the Fortune Nest Corporation, and he is the author of two books, Brave New Unwired World and Reconciliation, 78 Reasons to End the U.S. Embargo of Cuba. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim.